Okay, welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our book this week is Peach Blossom Paradise, written by Gaffey and translated by Kanan Morse. Who is here today? (laughs) The book was a finalist for the National Book Award for Translated Literature in 2021. Kanan is a translator, poet, and PhD candidate at Harvard University. In addition to Peach Blossom Paradise, he also translated Gaffey's The Invisibility Cloak into English. Welcome. Also a New York Review Book classic. That's true. So, Kaden, how'd you come to literary translation into Cafe's writing himself? I mean, that's, those are two distinct but related stories. I remember the first literature that I ever translated was a poem by a Cuban poet, a, trans, a naturalist Cuban poet named Juan Ramon Jimenez, whom I encountered as a junior or senior in high school when I was studying Spanish. My uh, high school only offered French and Spanish, as many U.S. high schools do. (laughs) But I was lucky to have an advanced Spanish teacher who was really big into literature. And I came upon, he uh, he sent me some of these poems, and it was sort of a reflex. It's just sort of the thing that I did without anybody asking me to. Mm -hmm. Um, And that continued when I started studying Chinese um, I'd taken a little Chinese when I was very young, and then I went back to it in high school on my own and continued in college. And then after college and moved back to China in 2007, in large part to keep translating and to meet Chinese writers and to start really digging my hands into it. So Gufei, that was a stroke of luck. By the time I was anyone in the Chinese literary translation scene, like I had done anything and known anyone at all, you know, his work was already extremely well-known. I mean, he's been a, a major voice in Chinese literature since the 80s. And let's see. I mean, I I worked... So I had started... I co- co-founded this organization called Paper Republic with uh, my friend Eric Abramson, who's also a Chinese literary translator, and a couple of other translators. And we were trying to make it successful as a business introducing Chinese literature to the West. Mm -hmm. Um, And we really wanted to back then to get into publishing, consulting and agent services. So in 2010, I was at the Beijing Book Fair because I was living in China at the time. And I went to a contact of mine, a friend of mine at People's Literature Publishing House. And I said, so what do you have on deck this year for brand new stuff? And she's like, well, we got this and this and this. And Gofei's got a new one and I don't really like it. It's kind of weird. And the minute that she said that, the minute that she said that, I was like, I must read this book. (laughs) And it was The Invisibility Cloak, which is this short, it's like this, basically like a long novella. And I took it, she gave me a free copy and I took it back to my dorm room at Peking University. And it was for the first time in a long time, I stayed up until like 4 a.m. reading a book. Wow. This is a thing that I used to do like all the time in high school. You know, middle school and high school, I would like, you know, hiding under the blankets reading sort of thing. And that just for some reason (laughs) kind of stopped until this book. And I was like, oh, this is a really good book. So I did what we did very well. I I wrote, I finished it. I blurbed it and I blurbed him. And then I did a sample translation and we worked it up into a super nice piece of marketing materials. And we sent it to NYRB. Mm. Oh wow! Um, 
we knew Jeffrey, well, we knew Jeffrey Yang. We knew he was interested in Gofei, especially in Chinese literature in general. And he was like, yeah, this is great. We should just have Kanan translate it. And I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> let me do this thing. Um, Had you been so, a fan of NYRB classics for a while before that? I didn't Be know honest. It That's okay. Yeah. Before we started this podcast, I didn't know what it was until Kasi introduced it to me. <laughs> Yeah. But what yeah. a great no, way to be introduced into the literary world. Unbelievable. Like, I didn't really, mm. like, I knew about New York Review of Books because of the magazine. Yeah. Sure. Um, and then I heard about Jeffrey Young, and so I started reading his poetry. And looking at the NYRB Classics backlist, you're just like, oh my God, this is basically the only criterion is that it's some of the best literature ever written. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. That's just, that's the only, their only major standard is that it's the really freaking good stuff. Yeah. So it, it, that was incredible. And like, I did it, you know, I did it the old way. So I wrote, I translated that entire thing by hand, like longhand. Wow. Um, and then I retyped, that was my old modus operandi was to, to sure. do my stories and poems longhand. And then as you transcribe, that's sort of like editing past 1.5, you know, and it just went, it was really amazing. Uh, Jeffrey is an extremely hands-on editor. Um, mm. I, I thought that I could write. <laughs> <laughs> he sent me back this doc with an average of like, I want to say 65 tracked changes per page. Um, yeah, it was an ax murder. It was an absolute, absolute <laughs> ax murder. And I was just like, Oh my God, I am so bad. But it was just, it was incredible. And then, you know, the book went through two, at least two more rounds of editing. There's the copy editor and then there's the proofreader. And then they got, because it's all about hi-fi equipment, they got someone from, they got a sound tech from like the New York Film Harmonic or something to come in and check all the hi-fi and like the sound wave wow. description. Stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the book was, for what it was, up a piece of upmarket literature, weird suspense hi-fi audio stuff from an international author it did very well um mm. for that sort of thing and the thing about Pe peach blossom paradise is that it's been something of a unicorn for chinese literary translators for at least 15 years before that it was gofei had a thing with a previous like he had an agreement with a previous literary translator who submitted a sample and got awarded money for it but that translator was also an academic at the time and they were bogged down with work and job applications and all that sort of thing. So the, the project never went anywhere. Uh, Peach Blossom Paradise, the Chinese original, was a landmark book when it came out in the early 90s. And so it was one of these books that just for some reason never seemed to make it into English. I knew three or four publishers who knew it and wanted it and were reaching for it and so when I did Invisibility Cloak, I was thinking about this book. Nice. And it was, it was one of these really happy examples of when you build a relationship of communication and mutual trust with an author, things usually get better. And I, Gofei really liked the way that I made sure to ask him questions about everything. So I would translate a chapter, and I did this in Peach Blossom as well. I would translate an entire chapter 
and I would collate all of my questions into an email and then I would send him an email and he would just go question by question and just respond. Sure. And both of us, we, we just, we have a really amazing working relationship. He's a super, super interesting guy, brilliant writer, but peach blossom was, it really was this like, cause it's very broad. It's very dense. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a doorstop and it's so historically sweeping and, mm-hmm. um, I was like, we're going to get this book. We're going to do this book. It's going to work. But I knew it was, you know, many's the slip between the cup and the lip with this sort of thing. So you just, you cover all your bases. I'm, I'm slipping into cliche here, but <laughs> you sort of look the, you sort of look the ball all the way into the glove and eventually it worked out. And we've, we've managed to, especially, this is crucial because China pays so much attention to human relationship. China is what's called a guanxi shuhui. It's a social relationship society in which if you put in the work with someone, you know, that personal relationships are sort of like, they're like the motivating center, the driving force of a lot of the change that happens in China. And so we really, Edwin Frank at, at NYRB did such an amazing job. I mean, Jeffrey was you know, is is an incredible editor, but Edwin also was just extremely welcoming. We brought Gothe over. We had oh, wow. a great time. Oh wow! Um, turns out that Edwin is also a hi-fi enthusiast. Like he loves okay. old vinyl. Surprise! Mm. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> so he had and and, and Gothe is a major classical music nerd. So they had a lot to talk about. Sure. So that was how we worked up to getting the contract down for Peach Blossom Paradise. Sure. Gotcha. Um, And getting it out, yeah. Well, Peach Blossom is such, I mean, that's such an ambitious project, right? It's the first volume in a trilogy. So that seems like a big step up from Invisibility Cloak. How did you approach that as a translator? Mm -hmm. It's really, it was really interesting because, of course, what I started with Invisibility Cloak, which, again, he wrote in 2009, 2010, and then all of a sudden you go back to this massive work of historical literature that is significantly broader in scope, but also came out when he was a much younger writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are stylistic aspects to his writing that either sharpened Invisibility Cloak or changed significantly. So you come at works like long works like that with much more of a marathoners mindset. You know, Invisibility Cloak, I I did half of it when I was at PKU and then I graduated from the master's and I came home and I did the whole second half of the book in like two or three weeks or less in the study in my mother's house. You know, like I was just like, sit down and just pound it out. (laughs) And you can't do that with with a four part huge historical novel and you have to be willing to dig historically yeah the thing about peach blossom as i'm sure you've noticed is that it covers a time that is habitually overlooked in major histories of china and yet was one of the most ideologically decisive moments in modern china's history but if you don't read up on it you're never going to know about it for instance you have to go back into history and look at the writings of Kang Youwei, who was China's 
greatest or second greatest public intellectual of the late 1800s. He was one of the more remarkable individuals who bridged imperial China and a Republican China that did not exist yet. And he was a massive fan of uh, his own brand of utopianism, which is what that book is about, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And when in the second part of the book, when uh, Xiaomi gets to Huajiaxue, the island, the the robber baron island, (laughs) she starts to hear about the old founder and his interest in the great unity. And that concept is not some weird sci-fi mumbo-jumbo that Goethe made up. It's a concept that Kang Youwei himself used and attempted to force onto China's political system during the Hundred Days Reform of 1899. Mm. So, and you have to know that stuff. Like, you have to go right. back and, and dig into it. Um, otherwise, you know, there are a lot of errors that you can make when you translate a work like that. Sure. Mm. Out of curiosity, any chance the second and third books... <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is um definitely a chance, definitely on the docket. Everyone wants to do it. Good. Um, <laughs> I am. The thing is that uh, in in the process, Goffet has also come out with a couple of really good new books. So there's going to be some interweaving of back and forth. There. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And in the current economic climate, I'm also going to be needing to sort of expand my outreach into external sources of funding yeah just because those books are very expensive to do um mm-hmm. like i said nyrb all of their work goes through four rounds of editing i mean which is and i didn't know this i thought after after those first two books went through i thought this was the norm for the u.s publishing industry and then i talked to an extremely well published nonfiction author mm-hmm. who was like yeah my editors barely edit my stuff <laughs> <laughs> and i was like really so, but in terms of, of human hours, expertise hours, man and woman hours, you know, New York Review Books, it's, it's me and then it's Jeffrey and then it's Sarah Kramer, who is the best. And I, I guess I haven't known too many of them, but even if I did, she'd still be the best copy editor I've ever met. Wow. Um, she's so good. Oh my God. And she's the, she's the person behind the NYRB uh, social media stuff. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. the bomb. Oh, Wow. Um, but we've interacted with her. That's kind of yeah, cool to know. Yeah, she's amazing. Love Sarah so much. And just like incredibly thorough, considerate. But it's, it's a lot of human hours into the work. Mm-hmm. So what with the availability of sort of various monies out there from various places, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need to take a little bit more time to expand. But, but yeah, Goffet has, uh, he's been really enthusiastic the whole way. Okay. Um, his original publishers, Peach Blossom, Cheese, uh, and look at me. His original publishers, People's Literature Publishing House, Yen <laughs> Men <laughs> uh, which is you know a name that might I think it it sounds a little weird to an American ear, like People's Literature. That's very communist. Um, but it's because <laughs> they were the very first publisher to open after the takeover in 1949, oh. which somewhat paradoxically means that they get all of the best authors because they are the oldest and most powerful. They have the most clout and the greatest amount of freedom to pick up new, exciting voices, as well as all the old big names like Moyen, you know, Moyen publishes with people's literature. 
anyway, they're super excited to keep going. I so so the answer is is absolutely best we can. It's just it's going to be a. But so then you're hoping to do it yourself then. Oh yes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, like no, I'm I you know this is all about holding on to like and just doing as best I can by my author and by yeah. these people who really care. Um, so, and I, you know, I just, I love his writing so much, like his style, even back then he was one of the most successfully sort of succinct authors in mm -hmm. the contemporary era. Chinese authors of Gofei's generation specifically have a penchant for writing these like 2 million character books that are like the entire history of China, you know, from <laughs> the point of view of a single village. Um, which, you know, it has, definitely has its advantage. And there is, a, there is a very, very powerful creative impulse that is aligned with that. But, you know, Gofei all along has taken small, overlooked pockets of time in which intense change has happened. And he's written about those moments. And they tend to be mm. brutal and they tend to be complicated and they tend to be deeply, deeply painful. But, you know, he just, he does it in those, in that trilogy and it just keeps getting better and getting denser as he keeps writing, which is why the newest ones, Invisibility Cloak and, and the newest few are just so good. Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating insight into the whole background and process to how these books come about. Yeah. Um, so we'll insert a little pricey of the book so the listeners know like what the general plot line is. <laughs> In 1898, reformist intellectuals in China persuaded the young emperor that it was time to transform his sclerotic empire into a prosperous modern state. The Hundred Days reform that followed was a moment of unprecedented change and extraordinary hope, brought to an abrupt end by a bloody military coup. Dashed expectations would contribute to the revolutionary turn that Chinese history would soon take, leading in time to the deaths of millions. Peach Blossom Paradise, said at the time of the reform, is the story of Zhu Mi, the daughter of a wealthy landowner and former government official who falls prey to insanity and disappears. Days later, a man with a gold cicada in his pocket turns up at his estate and is inexplicably welcomed as a relative. This mysterious man has a great vision of re-foraging China as an egalitarian utopia, and he will stop at nothing to make it real. It is his own plans, however, which come to nothing and his little sister, Shumi, is left to take up arms against a Confucian world in which women are chattel. Her campaign for change and her struggle to seize control over her own body are continually threatened by the violent whims of men who claim to be building paradise. And Gafei is a pen name of Liu Yong, right, who is, a, in addition to being a novelist, he's a literature professor. And as you said, he started publishing uh, short stories in the 1980s and then became associated with the literary avant-garde. It seems like he's kind of outgrown that label. Would you agree with that? I would. Okay. Yes. You talked a little bit about how you've been able to ask him questions and develop this relationship. Could you just give us a little bit more insight into how that evolved over time and how you do that? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Very, very gradually. Mm. So so there's a sure. bit of a backstory in like, there, no, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of context that is missing. And that part of that is that. Chinese authors, contemporary Chinese authors had kind of a bad experience with Western publishers and agents after the 1980s when a whole bunch of publishing people kind of jumped on the great works and authors of contemporary Chinese literature. 
and didn't do too well by some of them. There is just there are these hmm. famous stories. So Chen Zhongshi is a really good author, and he wrote a a book called Bai Lu Yuan, uh, White Deer Plain. And he was pursued by a French publisher whose name I currently forget, who somehow <laughs> managed to convince him through an acquaintance that he should sign a French language contract with no Chinese uh, translation that in that resulted in him giving the rights to that book away, the foreign rights to that book away in perpetuity. Meanwhile, other Chinese authors were picked up immediately by these well-known Western agents and then sort of left on a shelf. Mm. And... That I give you that context because it was very much present in my mind and in my friend Eric's mind when we approached Gofei and People's Literature trying to sell his books and work with his books. So, and, and we, this, was the, this was the case with all of the authors that we worked with. It was step by step, all business is done in Chinese, and when we say we're going to do something, we do it. So that has mm -hmm. been my my own personal motto with everything that I do with the, the authors that whom I translate. If I tell you I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And we make the final product as good as it possibly can. And the way that that works is we communicate. Like um, mm -hmm. the translator, most of the translators that I know prefer an open working relationship with their writers. In the case of Gofei, I simply email him. You know, like I said, I, I put everything together. It, the list tends to include both questions and observations. You know, mm. like, uh, let's see. Technical questions I can usually resolve on my own. So with Invisibility Cloak, there was a whole bunch of hi-fi technology stuff that I was, like, digging into the dark corners of the Internet, learning what the autograph subwoofer system from Tannoy was all about in the 1970s <laughs> or whatever. Sure. But with a book like Peach Blossom, which is so huge and which involves, for instance, architecture. Mm. One thing that I do regret that we didn't put in that book, in that translation, was a map of the villa that Xiaomi grew up in. Mm. Because one of the things you notice is that Gofei is very, very familiar with the structure of a southeastern Chinese rich person's manor. But... The outlines, the details of that architecture are not familiar at all to a Western reader. So, for instance, what is a sky well? He, the, if the, the thing is called a Tianjin, literally a sky well. And you're like, well, what? That's like, it's, it's where Xiaomi starts the book. She's sitting in the sky well. Okay, so I have to, like, not only am I digging through a bunch of, you know, materials on Chinese architecture, <laughs> I'm talking to him about what it physically looks like. So you have to draw your big outer square rectangle that's the outer wall. And then you have your two inner squares that are all rooms around central courtyards inside the big square. And between these two little squares, there is essentially open courtyard. It's like open patio, right? You're just looking up at the sky. And that is a sky well. And wow. like with that sort of thing, it's like I'm talking to him like, what is it? How big is it? Blah, blah. <laughs> and then I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for synonyms. And eventually I find no synonym anywhere, even in English language, <laughs> French language books on Chinese architecture. It's like, well, I have to make this word up. So I did. And meanwhile, like, oh, for instance, like there's some, there's a bunch of dialect in Peach Blossom because mm -hmm. Gufei is from mm -hmm. Jiangsu, which is right around the area. It's not quite, quite in the area, but it's right around the area where 
peach blossom takes place. And so there are a lot of colloquialisms. Grandma Mung uses them. Um, Balshen. She's the, she's, she's the goat. Yeah, she, she is the goat. She really is the goat. And then, and then, <laughs> and then, um, and then Balshen uses them, the, mm-hmm. the clerk. And you have to keep up with that. And so I have to keep going back to him, back to Gofei to be like, what gotcha. is it? Does this mean what I think it means? He's like, yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or, or something else. And then there's, you know, there's also, there are, phenomenal there's material culture that has to be clarified so that's that's basically how it works and like i so i communicate over email about that and then you know we communicate over wechat when everything else is you know on the line when we're talking about other stuff or if i have like one question i'm just gonna send him a message on wechat what the heck heck do you mean by this (laughs) i actually was gonna save this question for later but there's one part of the book i found very interesting in the idea of the translation Mm -hmm. Because this is when, um, is it Zhang Jian? How do you? Uh, who? Zhang Jian, the, the revolutionary who ends up dead. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Zhang Jian. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Zhang Jian, the mother is describing to Chumi who Zhang Jian is. Mm-hmm. And first she notices that it's a brother and then it's a cousin. And then she says just like, it's sort of like a jumbled up version or whatever. She's trying to throw it away. And Jian responds with, then jumble it. Everything's jumbled up these days. Yeah. Let's go ahead and jumble it all into jambalaya. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, there's no way the original word or character there is jambalaya in Chinese, in, in Mandarin. Yeah, I literally cannot remember what that is in the Chinese. That's fine. I'm, I'm more wondering about, like, when is your approach to, like, decide not to use what a traditional colloquialism or Chinese thing it means? And instead for a Western audience be like, Let's use this phrase to be like jumbled like jambalaya, mm-hmm. and then we can understand that a lot better. Context, and that's and I think you've you've sort of already hit it. It's context. Translating literature mm-hmm. is the translation of receptive context. How does it feel to a Chinese reader to read X Y Z in Chinese? You know what 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 connotations, what emotions are being, what illusions are being drawn out in this text for them. And uh, Zhang Diyuan, in, in the source text, in the Chinese source text, he says something like, luan la hao, luan dao, blah, blah, blah. And he, he uses, it's like an idiom or something or a play on words. <laughs> I can't remember. But the, the Chinese phrase, luan, which directly tr- translates means chaos or to make chaotic. Oh, mm. gotcha. He uses it in this sort of, it's like this sort of like clever slightly flippant also slightly mm-hmm. biting manner that his character is sort of known for and so i such a good character yeah well, yeah, yeah he's he scary yeah he's, he's a scary guy but he's a scary guy yeah. of the exact sort that that you know we see in we saw during that revolution we saw them in the revolution of 1911 we saw them again during the cultural revolution in 1968 yeah. These guys who believe that revolution is simply cutting people's heads off, we see a lot of them. And, and in China, in contemporary China, modern China, they came out of the universities. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, he, so he uses this like semi-erudite, very clever, slightly you know, self-satisfied play on words, I think. And it was like, well, what am I going to do about this? And, and in, in these situations... It's just one of those things where you you pull out a piece of scratch paper and you just start listing options. 
option one, option awesome. two. It's like random, 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 random. And I go by the sound of the word. This rhymes with this. Bleh, and you sort of like do <laughs> Dylan, Tom- Dylan Thomas did this stuff all the time. Like he would write a line. Be, oh, that's actually my namesake. <laughs> oh, really? That's, so that's good. Yeah, I was named after Dylan <laughs> my Thomas. My old man was horrified when because like he's you know Thomas Thomas's poetry feels so natural and vital, like it just came off his mm-hmm. tripped off the tongue. And then you know you look at Dylan Thomas's drafts, and he will have written a line, and then in the next margin, he'll literally list all the words he could think of that rhymed with the last word of the line because <laughs> he's like, oh, I need to rhyme this. So. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, it's just luck and time. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things we kind of talk about in our prologue is sort of the discussion on the, the choice of the co- cover art. Mm-hmm. Did you have any influence on this? I, I should quickly mention it is um, <laughs> Memories of a Southern Spring Morning painted by Lo Ching. Mm-hmm. I hope I got that mm-hmm. right. We can just describe that the painting represents a sort of fractured look about how memories appear to us with openings allowing broken glances to a wondrous moments from the possible utopia in the past. And I, I mm-hmm. what a good way to represent the book. I, we always find that NYRB does a good job with that. Was were you part of the process in picking that uh, painting? I was given some options. Uh, they, That's awesome. Yeah, they, I was I was asked if I had any ideas, and the problem is, although I am married to an image person, I myself am very much not an image person. So, mm-hmm. like, I I tossed out a couple of ideas, and they were terrible, and um, <laughs> and then and then I can't remember if it was Sarah or Edwin or Jeffrey who it was. They came in with two or three pieces of work by that artist. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, oh, that's so <laughs> bright and inky. They're trippy. They're super trippy. But then I was like, oh, exactly. Like that makes perfect yeah. sense. So yeah, no, I was, they, she, they, they sent out two or three and I think we all voted. Mm, that's how it happened. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool to learn about. Yeah. Yeah. And they wanted to make sure, I think that we also wanted to make sure that it was a, it was a Chinese art- artist that mm-hmm. it was a East Asian artist. And, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So the title alludes to the Peach Blossom Spring myth, right? Which tells of this fisherman who chances upon this idyllic society where the inhabitants remain untouched by the political upheavals of the outside world. And of course, once the fisherman leaves, he's not able to return. So this book starts out with the main character, Shumi's father, like with a suitcase in hand, kind of setting off. He disappears. The family doesn't know where he goes, but presumably he went off in search of this mythical land, which he had become, you know, increasingly obsessed with, driven to insanity in some people's opinion. So this whole search for the better (laughs) world foregrounds the book, right? Whether it's a storybook paradise or a bloody revolution, it advances the story in all kinds of different unexpected directions. What do you think Gaffey has to tell us about utopia and whether that's a worthy aim worth striving for? The idea, I think, the idea, I mean, there, I think there are many ideas. The one that struck me was the inevitability of bloodshed and mm-hmm. the, the, the paradoxical need to achieve utopia or at least the semblance of utopia through unbelievable brutality and this having everything to do with the corrupting the basically corrupting nature of power yeah you just people try and they try and they try and it always fails and you know you think about you think about all the people in the past who have 
had these dreams of projected these huge projects for a utopian society that always have some horrendous underbelly somewhere. And I think that was, that was part of it. The, the thing is that the, the most, the clearest example of that in everybody's mind, minds in the Chinese context is, is the Maoist revolution. Mm-hmm. Both the initial revolution in 1949, ending in 1949, and the Cultural Revolution that happened in 68. I mean, Mao was continually attempting to make it new. His refuge, the sort of nest of the Communist Party in China in Yan'an in the 1930s and 40s, featured a form of essentially sort of like soul transformation through intense debate. That was how all the major early texts and groups of the original communist party came to be. People found this like religious conversion through intense public debate and display. It was like, it was like a rebirth through words. Mm -hmm. He tried to do it again in the great leap forward an industrial version of that, which got 24 million people killed. And then he tried to do it again in 1968 when he ordered the Red Guards to go out and basically destroy what he saw as insidious elements in the party that were drifting to the right. And everyone, I think, feels that that process was unique to him. But all you have to do is learn a little history to discover that no people have been doing that sort of thing and acting with that same degree of sort of hardlinerness for centuries before that. And, you know, even in this, this period that was so outwardly, so transformative and so liberal, intellectually liberal, still involved a lot of on the ground, hopeless bloodshed. And mm-hmm. so Goffet plays with a number of different some better, some lesser known typo- character typologies. The bandit kings of Hua Jiaxue, the bandit leaders, are deeply resonant of the anti-hero types of like the water margin, the old Chinese uh, Ming mm. Dynasty classics, like the, the old martial arts classics and those sort of things. They're, they are, they've sworn off being governed by the Imperium. They're remaking society in their own terms. There's a, this highly like uh, religious, like either Buddhist or Taoist sort of motivation, sort of feel to what they're doing. And they blend, in this case, this idea of Western-derived liberal, intellectually liberal utopias with Chinese, deeply Chinese ideas of Taoist utopia, the Western paradise from Chinese, Buddha, Chinese Buddhism, and even traces of Christian influence. You know, the shadow of the Taiping Rebellion is also still very mm-hmm. present. I don't know if you know, have, have heard anything about the Taiping Rebellion, but the Taiping Rebellion was a Christian re- uh, revolt led by Hong Xiuquan in southeast China, who thought he was Jesus's nephew, I believe, that resulted in wow. the starvation and murder of another 20 plus million people. It was an incredible incredibly bloody rebellion attempting to bring a utopia you know a in this case a christian utopia uh in the in the in the end middle and end of the last dynasty so you know all of these threads come together in this book 
I think it should be clear at this point that this is a historical novel, right? And you talk in the translator's note about this special historical moment that the book tackles. Uh, you describe it as the calm before the storm. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that Gaffey foreshadows the storm is these short, you know, more repertorial annotations about what kind of befalls people and places further on into the 20th century. And I love these so much. They're so helpful and interesting. Some of them are almost like little miniature one paragraph short stories. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to read one really quick. This is about the golden cicada. Yes. One of the golden cicada ones, right? So it says Mm -hmm. in November, 1968, Uh, Meicheng County took steps to reform funerary practices in response to the government-directed movement to modernize old customs. A public cemetery was constructed in Puji. During the process of transferring remains from the old tombs to the new location, villagers accidentally discovered a golden cicada among a pile of bones in a cornfield on the western side of the village. Village elders confirmed that the bones belonged to the son of the revolutionary martyr Lu Zhumi. The boy had been shot by Manchu soldiers when he was only five years old. Yet the Lu family had neither direct descendants nor proximate relations. The cicada passed through several hands and was finally given to a barefoot doctor named Tian Xiaowen. An elderly jeweler melted it and reworked the gold into a ring and a pair of earrings for her. Dr. Tian became ill and passed away not long after. On her deathbed, she told several people that she could hear a small child whispering in her ear. Oh my gosh. Uh, so those are, those are so fascinating. They remind me almost of like... Borges yeah. or something like it is this like little miniature mm-hmm. story within the story. Mm-hmm. So how did how did you mm-hmm. approach kind of bringing the book's historical moment to English language readers who have a lot less context for interpreting these events? Yeah. So one of the important things to do with language like the language that you just read is to make resonant the sound of Chinese official histories. Mm. There is a connection. Those author's notes are written like the stuff that sometimes does not appear Mm. in sanctioned histories. The communists had a very, very specific way of writing. You always know Chinese government or government-sanctioned prose styles because it all sounds the same. (laughs) They learned it from the Russians. They perfected it in the 1940s and the 50s. And... Like, like, for instance, language like uh, a public center in order in order to, you know, modernize, you know, public health and sanitation practices, that sort of thing. That sort of phraseology is is communist language. Mm -hmm. And you have to know what it sounds like. It has to be very sanitized, cut corners. (laughs) It has to be a little Mm self-important. And you have to put that in. Because that's just what the documents sound like. Mm. And, and with many, you know, with, 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 because we live in the age that is of sort of anti-footnotes, anti-footnoting literature, most people don't like footnotes or most publishers are like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Unless your name is Jonathan Zaffron Frower, don't put them in there. <laughs> and that's why we did the preface. It was like as short as it could be, but we kept the inline annotations a so that the the reader didn't have to look down b because of course it's all fake history, but we wanted to preserve the feeling that the author was whispering to you mm-hmm. and 
you know, when you read Chinese histories, you really hope that there's somebody whispering to you. And a lot of times there are, and like the, the, the historians who have been read and censored or silenced or whatever have over the years found ways to insert the truth into the chronicle. Gotcha. So to answer your question the best I know how, you historicize it by making sure that the text stands on its own and assuming that no one knows anything and they should not need to know anything. Gotcha. You know, that, that is one of those things where, you know, your Chinese readers will recognize the tone of communist history immediately because they've read it a bajillion times. <laughs> and with, with American readers, for instance, you simply have to make sure that it sounds like what it sounds like so that their ears register the difference. Gotcha. You're like, oh, wait, mm-hmm. that's a different thing. Like, we've moved into a whole different ecosystem of yeah. language now. That's really cool. It definitely succeeded. Yeah, yeah I love those, that part. Mm, good. The book is told in the third person, but Cafe does something really interesting with this, we found. As there's four sections, each focuses on a specific character that is not central to the action. They're sort of outside what is going on. They're sort of an innocent and more of an observer. To the real uh, narrative of the revolution... Uh, why do you think Cafe decided to focus each section on an outsider's perspective? And furthermore, did you find yourself translating the text in different ways when focused on these different characters? Because the first two are Zhumi, the third is Tiger, and the fourth is Magpie. The fourth is called Little Thing, or is it? It's it's it, it, it starts with Xiaodongxi. I think that's a really incredible observation. This is one of those things where uh, the Chinese say the person inside the event is sort of is diluted while the observer is clear. Gotcha. You just made an observation about the book that I had not made. Oh, wow. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't occur to me that he was writing every single si- section from, he was centering an outsider. That's a brilliant observation. Um, and I have no idea why. <laughs> um, it, no, no. I mean, there's there are a lot, a lot of really good uh, surmises that we can make. One of the things is that a lot of traditional literatures globally tend to focus on the heroes or the heroines. You know, mostly mostly male, he grown mm-hmm. up. You know, heroes. You know, slaying dragons and doing various normative things. And by contrast, by focusing on the outsiders, as it were, or those who have been almost like, they've almost been like forced to the outside. They're either children. Yeah, they're being kept away. Right. They're being kept away. And by doing that, he really does something very different. Like he forces you to essentially deal with just a different kind of story. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you come up like, it's really crazy. Like if you think about like even the cra- the really amazing other works of modern Chinese literature, like to live focuses on a main protagonist who's a, a kind of a piece of crap himself, but he's still the main guy. And then if you look back at all of the like communist era heroic literature, you know um, it's all, it's all like the, the like adept intrepid, you know, red army soldier or the, the farmer right all that sort of thing so huh that's a hell of a good observation (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank I, you. I wish I had more, but this is, again, this is proof that like, you know, everybody finds something else. Yeah, we were discussing that a lot and we were kind of thinking like, is this sort of a way? Because basically the revolution that uh, Zhang Jiun is a part of isn't really the revolution that wins. You know, it's also Dapples is kind of hinted at the six-fingered man that he's working with. You know, like, even though the even the revolution works, it's not like the people that we were following, necessarily. And we were surmising as we were talking over uh, a quiche yesterday. <laughs> nice. um, we were sort of like, is this because, like, most of the times things don't change for the normal person. And so this person that just sort of is observing and seeing these people. And I think it's interesting because Jiumi is definitely the outsider for the first two, but as soon as she's the principal, mm -hmm. then we're taking the backseat to her. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's you've just made a lot of extremely good points. I mean, in revolutions that are supposed to make everything better, who gets screwed? The, you know, the poor people get screwed. The people who follow get screwed. Like... You know, Cromwell's, you think a lot about like Cromwell's revolution. Oh, my God. I mean, he was a murderer. <laughs> he was a mass murderer. And, you know, the Irish are never going to forget that. Like, um, yeah. and he just, you know, it's the same. It's the same thing. It's like revolution is cutting heads up. Like when you're at the top, revolution might be about changing structures of government or whatever. But when you're at the bottom, it's about getting thrown in jail and maybe dying. Yeah. Like, or nothing changing. Like just like the all. person that's sitting in the magistrate chair and you're just right. dealing with the next famine and you right. know, living to the next time you have to pay your uh, yep. uh, farmer. Yep, exactly. And you know, we saw that with the Russian Revolution when mm -hmm. the politically powerful became the economically powerful, then became the politically powerful again. Uh, it happened in China. You know, it happens in the United States, like yes. everywhere else. Like, so yeah, the just the same people get screwed every time and that's definitely part of his point interesting <laughs> so i also i because we went out of order i do have the next point again gafei uses a strong symbolic motifs that sort of represent the arc of the book himself mainly talking about what we've mentioned the golden cicada as well as sort of the enameled copper basin what do you think these symbols mean at different points in the narrative and how do they enhance it ah uh, like okay. what a breath uh, like <laughs> It gets real hard because for a couple of reasons. One, he starts the whole symbolic structure with a poem by Li Shangyin. Mm -hmm. Now, Li Shangyin was one of... He was a poet's poet of the Hai Tang, and he wrote some of the most beautiful and most incomprehensible lyrics... <laughs> Uh, that you will ever see from that period. My good friend Lucas Klein has written about him quite extensively. Uh, another friend, Chloe Garcia Roberts, has translated the poetry of Li Shangyin. And also through, no, who did she publish that? She published it with someone really well-known. She published a collection of his poems, including that poem, The Golden Cicada Bites the Lock. No idea what those lines mean. None. <laughs> I, I, I love. I write poetry. I love poetry. I have no idea what he's talking about. I mean, look the the. So Chan, the cicada. The word for cicada is homophonous with the word for Zen. Oh wow! Okay, and it's important to know that what the, the Japanese call Zen Buddhism began in China as the Chan sect of Buddhism. 
It's almost the same character. And so we have this immediate connection because of course the cicada is a very, very deeply mythologized and easily metaphorized being, you know, it, it lies underground mm-hmm. asleep for 17 years until one day when they all explode out. And this has been, you know, uh, n- you know, compared to, again, the revolutionary spirit, the will of the people, also the enlightenment of the soul. And part of the funny thing is when, when Shomi's father writes that copies out that poem his buddy that he gets in the fight with Mm -hmm. says that you've written this wrong. It's the character for toad. (laughs) It's a golden toad bites the lock. Right. And he's like, you've turned, you've, you've come out with a cicada, but it's not a cicada. It's just a freaking toad. Mm. (laughs) And thus we have, thus we have the bitter, truth of this symbol for enlightenment and transformation it's not even correct like it, it's it's the result of a misreading <laughs> mm. and so you know that that i think to in to enshrine the symbol in a piece of golden jewelry is almost to deepen and to harden the contradiction and the sort of sick joke yeah, because yeah, again, over the quiche yesterday, we were sort of mapping out the, the story of this cicada. And in the first part, it gets brought up at the end where Zhang Xiun gives Shumi the cicada. And it's like this mystical thing. Oh my gosh, look at this beautiful thing that he's entrusted to me that only the secret other person can know about. Mm. And in the second part, one of the uh, warlord brothers just pulls out a cicada himself and she's like, the, almost the importance is lost. Like, what does this mean? Someone else has it. Mm-hmm. And then the third part, the bloodshed happens and it kills her son that she's been ignoring basically the whole time. Right. And out falls a cicada out of his breast pocket. Mm-hmm. And then finally in the fourth part, Dapples gives away his cicada back to Shumi and is like, you know, this is over. And then she can't even pawn it off because they the, what mm-hmm. they want is food, not these pieces of jewelry and so we kind of were getting at it just from a very high level symbolic aspect of it but adding in this idea that we like don't know about sort of the uh the toads the characters and things that it's only briefly mentioned that you would have a bigger understanding of is that's huge Mm -hmm. yeah i mean there's a lot of you know there's a lot of real symbolism and then there's a lot of self-undercutting symbolism Mm. in there Mm -hmm. um and again it's also like he really doesn't I think he allows you to go into an interpretation that's like, who are these idiots like passing around secret tokens with secret hands yeah. and crap? Like this is not this is not the this is not a Ming Dynasty martial arts novel. Mm. Yeah, and these guys are acting like it is. Mm-hmm. You know, right? And another way in which it's not a Ming Dynasty martial arts novel is that the treatment of women, women's role in society, is one of the book's major themes. And we see how women kind of, how our main character, who is a female, precipitates her own mini revolution and then kind of heals after its dissolution. And it changes over the course of the book. And I wondered what you thought about the kind of 
revolutionary, in quotes, way that the book approaches female characters. <laughs> so it, it is, it is, I will say it is central in my mind. And it was, it, it was central in my mind the entire way because we are dealing with such... That's good to know. First of all, we're dealing with such a massive cultural and historical gap between the Chinese experience and the American experience, for instance. And yet, with the advent of social media and the internet, conversation has increased. Very productive conversation has increased. And you have... For instance, you have a lot of a lot of Chinese women in this generation who, especially writers, both fictional and non, who have a lot to say for very good reason. <laughs> His I deeply appreciated the complexity that Gothe instilled in Xiaomi and her, the determination, the capacity to both succeed and fail. Mm -hmm. for reasons that were not stereotypical reasons like oh she wants to get married like th there's none of that you know like <laughs> Shumi is not that person she is not a cut out character and that's incredibly important it is I think it is to me most important that the historical that the context is described correctly such that she is continually swept up by forces that she cannot control or even get under control. Mm -hmm. And that very much is the narrative. I mean, that, 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 that mirrors the experience of, of women, especially, especially independent, ambitious, well-educated women from the late 1800s onward in moments of revolution. There are, you know, I, I studied Chinese, traditional Chinese performing arts and particularly oral storytelling. Several of the best storytellers who are still alive today are women. And they have been, they have been, they've been performing since the 1950s. And the need to be the best of the best, like three times as good in order to sit in the chair, fashioned their worldview to an incredible degree because they were under a million different kinds of pressure from start to finish. And I think Gothe, I think the, the, the novel does an excellent job of, of describing those pressures because those are the forces that everyone can see, but most many people ignored. Mm -hmm. Like the way there's like her treatment, like when she's in jail in the last section and she has this conversation with the brand new magistrate of whatever <laughs> yeah. who's only there because he's vicious and had mm. money and is mm -hmm. male. And it's like, it's a very short conversation at the same time when I translate it, when I read it and translate it, I'm like, I like you hear in that conversation echoes of all the other conversations she had with, you know, the, 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 the bandit leaders and with her weird, ass father and with her mother <laughs> and with Zhang Ziyuan throughout the book. So when it comes to how he described the character of Xiaomi, my opinion is not important. And so I will not thrust it upon anyone. Sure. So, but, but I will say that I am very grateful for the degree of complexity that he, that he gave her and instilled in the story around her. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And when you talk about the part where she's in prison at the end, I actually have a uh-huh. little bit of a reading from that because I think it mentions something interesting. Shumi spent three months in Meiching jail before being transferred south of the city to an abandoned guest house filled with cotton. A Western-style garden villa in a nearby valley served as her last residence as a prisoner. The villa ringed a wrought iron fence topped with iron spikes, which was originally owned by a female missionary from the United Kingdom. The powerful silence of uninvited forests enveloped the villa night and day. The garden featured Chinese gazebos, crooked walkways, and brick-lined paths, and a bronze statue of an angel on a fountain. Years of exposure to the elements had turned the angel's skin bright green. In order to convert the pious Buddhists to her own Christian faith, the 62-year-old missionary had immersed herself in Buddhist studies and even teaching herself Pali. Five years later, she converted to Buddhism. In 1887, she wrote a letter to a bishop in Scotland, openly proclaiming that Buddhism is superior to Christianity in every respect. God's wrath soon followed afterward. In July 1888, a sudden outburst of mob violence claimed her as a victim. Her body was found in a sparsely populated temple in the north of Meiching have been subjected to horrifying brutalization. And I, I thought that was interesting that inside of this prison that they're keep, they were keeping um, Shumi in was also a creation of a, another female revolutionary who fought against her Christian beliefs back home and became Buddhist. But once again, yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And then again, the, the, story, the, the stories and sub-stories of the missionaries in China, they really span the gamut. Um, and there was a lot of lot mm. of really weird and crazy stuff that happened with that too. I mean, we have the early writings of Matteo Ricci from the 1500s, who was in Ming China, and who, you know, kept trying to reform all of these Confucians and get them to see the light. And they were just like, like we like your stuff, but your philosophy is <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I was surprised just about kind of treatment of women thing. Having read The Invisibility Cloak, the the main character of that, I wouldn't say he's kind of an anti-heroic character and his view of women is somewhat shallow. He's somewhat dismissive and focused on their, you know, uh, physical appearance. And so I was I was kind of surprised coming to this to see how like what a major role women played and how kind of critical it was and multifaceted and multilayered th- through Shumi herself and then all the different characters. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, the, I mean, well, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, the Invisibility Cloak, the main character is, he is a protagonist only in the technical sense. It's <laughs> a beautiful you know, like, description. <laughs> um, he is not meant to be a good guy, quote unquote, you mm. know, like, like we, I, we we can be sympathetic to him because in many ways he's extremely human, but he's also kind of a bitter sob with a very <laughs> very like slanted view of the world, mm. like narrow view of the world. And I think Gofei sort of allows us to see that. Sure. But and 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 you know the, we don't know as much about his eventual his second wife, but she's the sub one of the subjects of the prequel that just came out. Oh. Okay, so we had we we had an experience when we were looking at the Goodreads for um, 
Peach Blossom Paradise and it said like, <laughs> I forget what the name of the series is, but it said number one. We clicked on it and we saw two more books after Peach Blossom Paradise <laughs> and they were all written oh, in yeah. um, Mandarin. And so we were like putting them into the Google Translated, <laughs> reading the plot synopsis. And we're like, oh my God, I can't believe that's what's going to come. <laughs> and so now we're having this yeah, experience yeah. again of like, oh my God, there's an Invisibility Cloak prequel. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's actually really it's actually really good. Nice, <laughs> nice. Heck yes. Also quite short, yeah. So. Talking about other books, uh, this book is really rife with classical allusions. Yeah. Uh, not only to the central myth of the peach blossom, but to many other uh, classic stories, including, should mention, this is like Cassius' favorite book of all time, is Dream of the Red Chamber. Really? Yes, for sure. And But wow. you mentioned Water Margin as well, and I'm sure there's so many other uh-huh. that we couldn't even pick up on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Kasi has read the whole uh, story of the stone and dream of the red chamber, whatever you want to say. Amazing. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She said she gets that reaction every time she mentions that to someone. You know, I took an entire seminar on mm-hmm. this book. I mean, it's, it's, it's my advisor's specialty, and I will eventually teach it. And as someone who's awesome. read it in the Chinese, I just got to say, like, so good on you. I mean, David Hawk's translation is amazing. Yeah. But what a... Uh, I mean, you want to talk about a marathon. That's sure. 120 chapters of, like, intrigue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what else can we want from literature, in it's, all honesty, though? I guess. I, guess it, it, I mean, you know, I, I would love to hear, why do you like it? Please well, tell me. The I'm experience that I had reading it, I was in Shanghai for the summer, and I thought, okay, well, I'd heard about this book. You know, it's one of the four classical novels. Like, I'll drop by the English language bookstore and give it a shot. And there was like a little um, gelato shop like in the bookstore. And I thought, okay, I'll just sit down and like read the first few pages. And it was maybe like midday that I dropped by. And I just started to read the book. And, you know, I didn't think I had been there that long at all. And then I kind of looked up and it was dark and like people were sweeping the floor and the place was closing. And like (laughs) hours had just like disappeared into the book. And I couldn't believe that it started with like literally the creation of the universe. Like we start on this otherworldly plane and then like there's a stone and a flower and then the stone is a boy, the flower is a girl. I was just like, what? And it was my first introduction Mm -hmm. to Chinese literature, period. I don't think I'd read any other Chinese literature. And then to like read the summit of it, you know, (laughs) it's just, it's like a thousand or a million books in one, you know, it's encyclopedic. It's, It's not even like a novel. It's something else. Yeah. It's Mahler esque. It, it was just incredible. Mm-hmm. It's unmatched, mm-hmm. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And uh, the I dream of the Red Chamber, the, the, the references to a whole among. I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to preempt a question here. Um, the <laughs> references okay. to. So all of Goethe's books are multi textual in this respect. He loves mm-hmm. quoting other stuff, and it's th- that in in itself is an extremely, you know, we see that in many other literary tra- traditions as well. I mean, it's basically ninety five percent of Ulysses is stuff from other places, but uh, yeah. right, <clears throat> but in Chinese literature especially, it is a central practice quotation and illusion and you know you get to point the point where stuff like dream the red chamber is so unbelievably dense um that you need a dictionary just to get through a lot of it but yeah peach blossom he he really does it it makes for a lot of research and what Mm -hmm. you have to do for instance in 
in in that chapter of Peach Blossom where he quotes Dream of the Red Chamber, that I believe comes from my my edition of the Hawks translation. I all, for all of this all all of the stuff that appears, the actual legit literature that appears in there, I do my best to find an authoritative English translation okay. somewhere else. Sure. Yeah. Out of curiosity, is this? Do you watch uh, Star Trek at all? <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay. There's what? a character in um, the Next Generation series called Darmok who only speaks through illusions, and they get dropped out. He gets dropped down to a planet with Picard, and he keeps on trying to tell him things like through illusions. And Picard has to like. At first, he's like, "What the heck?" And then he's like, "Oh, we're talking as in references right, and stuff." And right, the way right. you, the way you described uh, the Chinese literature being made completely of illusions. Mm-hmm. Just well, sorry, that was a silly point, well, but it reminded me of that. Well, here's a here's a um it. So that is actually like imagine imagine a drinking game that was all people talking like that. That was very very popular. Awesome. The Chinese from Sounds from the cool. Song Dynasty, Tang Dynasty onward, the 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 intellectual the literati would get together, and because everyone had read the same canon, they would play drinking games where there would be a di- they'd have die or dice, and you would roll the dice, and you would get a number that would correspond to a task. It's sort of like playing kings, you know, except the task would be. The group chooses a flower, oh, and okay. you write a poem. You you extempore compose a poem on the flower that relates to a certain poet. Mm. And those games had multiple layers. I mean, like for instance, one of the ones okay. that Ezra Pound's favorite of these games is they used to sell a scent box in the Ming and Qing dynasties. I believe it started in the Ming, but I could be wrong. They would sell uh, a scent box, and you would roll a die. You would get one of these scents and you would sniff the thing you had to contact correctly identify the the scent and then you would either compose or you would recite a poem referring to that scent Mm. okay so you want to talk about speaking in illusions i mean (laughs) you get to you know you get to the later poets of the late ming and especially the late ming and the early Qing, and every line alludes to some piece of classical poetry it all builds on itself like that wow yeah that can also reach a, a point of saturation and you can you can always tell and i, I this is probably possibly too grand a narrative but for instance i can read i i find it actually quite easy to read history the histories and the prose other forms of prose from say the song dynasty from a thousand years ago because they are written in a new, rough, straightforward Chinese. Well, the writers, the authors, and the poets of subsequent Mm -hmm. dynasties just started sort of ingrown toenailing that. (laughs) And they get more and more elusive. And by the end of the Ming, (laughs) literati prose is so convoluted that I find a lot of it very, very difficult to read. Like I, I, I spend a lot of time sort of banging away with a dictionary on the stuff that, <laughs> uh-huh. like the, the eight-legged essays that were written at the end of the Ming for the palace <laughs> examination. Um, the the standard formulaic essays are so elusive and they spend so much time with other people's language that they lose all spirit of their own, which is why when you discover the people who all of a sudden there's a yeah. massive social break and people start writing in their own language. I mean, this is why Lu Xun in, in, in 1919, the diary of a madman 
and all of his later work was so insanely revolutionary because he was writing in his own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kicked, he kicked all the illusions to the curb. And that's part of Peach Blossom Paradise. It's okay. almost like, you know, uh, Lu Lao Ye, Xiaomi's father, is driven insane by his mm-hmm. classical education. You know? It was kind of Don Quixote-like or something, like so much yeah. that he got, got soul sick from it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's per- that's actually perfect. I'd never, for some reason, I hadn't thought of Don Quixote, but that's exactly what he is. And, you know, with someone like uh, uh, Goethe, who is incredibly well-versed in Western literature, as most of his generation is, mm. um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I have no idea whether or not he was thinking of that sort of thing, but it is certainly present. Sure. And you would be absolutely justified in finding Cervantes in that book. And we found Cervantes and Don Quixote in our book previously to this, which was in Ermin and Chernobyl. And... You know, even if uh, we, d- we don't have as much of an illusion-based culture, Don Quixote is really something that, like, most movies or books written <laughs> ever since then has a, just a very specific thing. Moby Dick, Ulysses, uh, Don Quixote. I feel like I can always reference a book to those in some ways, this search for, like, I mean, destiny, that's, that's glory, great, things like that. Great narratives don't have to be quoted to be present. True. Yeah. Yeah. We, the What I was building up to with this uh, point, though, was just a little bit of a question. What was your perspective as a translator when they have such a number of significant Chinese literary texts and history? How do you make that working knowledge into something that isn't overwhelming to an English-speaking reader that might not have that history? Two, there are two strategies. First of all, you write clean prose. That's just the first thing you do. You, you, okay. you sharpen your style as best you can and and you know good clean words will do the job gotcha the other thing that you do is where in the most sort of in the slyest way that you can you make sure that you put relevant information into the surrounding context and i did that with that first reference to deep dream of the red chamber i forget how i did it uh, it's something like yeah. I wish it, I had it written down. I'm sorry. It's it's fine. But, I mean, in the original, in the, I mean, in the source text in the Chinese, Zhang Ziyuan simply makes a reference. He said, "Oh, so you are Xia Baoyu, and I'm Lin Daiyu in this occasion." Or he says something like that. And for a Chinese reader, that's all you need because those are the char- the main characters, correct? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and I forget what I did. Uh, it was something small. You okay. stick some words into somebody's mouth that are necessary. You know. Uh huh. And yeah, like it's, it's, it's usually you have to, um, like for instance, quotation marks go a really long way. (laughs) Like I was doing, I actually, the, the, the most recent thing that I had published is a short story by, by Cao Cole. It just came out in the white review called stench. And in the story, uh, this group of like sort of local officials are being really nasty to a young lady whose mother is very sick. And they're sort of chiding her for not coming home regularly. And, and one, of the, one of the supercilious dudes is like, well, then you should also And then he snickers. And if you don't know, literally means come home often to see your parents. Okay. Mm-hmm. The thing is, it's the, it's the title and main lyric in this like incredibly saccharine overplayed song. Oh. 
Kong, please don't come, come, please don't come. It was all over. Like, you're it was quite good. The, like, the Spring Festival Gala, and you're just like, I hate this song. But it was stuffed <laughs> into everybody's ears. It was stuffed into everybody's ears in the mid mid 2000s. And so when the poli- when the, when this guy says that, he's being clever. He thinks he's gotcha. being ironical. And no American reader is going to know that. So you put quotes around the part that he's clipping from. Uh-huh. So people are like, oh, that's a reference. And then you just like put a little clause at the end, you know, mm-hmm. quoting the song or whatever. And then everyone in the scene kind of rolls their eyes and, and, and the reader is like, oh, I get it. Okay. Mm. Interesting. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of little tips and tricks. You you massage what you need to massage into the prose. Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't go overboard. Gotcha. I want to talk a little bit more about poetry because it is pretty big role in the in the book. It comes up several different times. Poetry is a way that characters kind of communicate obliquely, but also play games with one another. As a poet yourself, what was it like to translate the poetry in this book? I needed to make sure that I did not treat it too subjectively. Okay. So... Because when you do so, especially as a poet, you run the risk of stepping in front of the original writer. Yeah. Mm. I had this experience, luckily, in a non-harmful setting because I caught myself. I was I was at Vermont Studio Center with one of the of the one of the poets that I still translate, Yang Xiaobin. He's a Taiwanese poet, and I love his work. It's very wacky, deconstructionist, abstract stuff. <laughs> and I was translating. It's very like image and object oriented, and I was translating all of this stuff just all of these poems and just kind of getting into it and thinking of new ways that I could do it. And I wrote all these drafts down and I printed them out and I looked at them the next day and I'm like, why does this all sound like Seamus Heaney? <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, fudge. Like, <laughs> and so I pitched all the drafts. Mm. Okay. I just threw them all away and it was like, well, this, this mm. isn't right. You know? And so Especially because in the Chinese poetic, especially the poetic tradition that Magpie is writing in, Magpie is very much, she's like, she's coming from the outside, but she is, Mm. she is a poet. Mm -hmm. She's trying to work her way into the world of Chinese poets, which, and Chinese, classical Chinese poetry, which cares about parallelism. It cares about the perfect reflection of the other in the self particularly a natural other in the self. One of the things you notice about a lot of classical Chinese poems is you can't find an I. Oh. Okay. They are the, 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 the speaker is effaced as completely as possible. And this owes a lot to the contribution of Wang Wei and uh, Xie Lingyun and Cold Mountain Hanshan, who was a monk, very, very famous uh, uh, Buddhist poet. And the poetry of the Buddhist influences on poem on Chinese poetry. I urge you to read a book called 19 ways of looking at Wang Wei, which is 19 different translations of one Wang Wei poem. Mm. Uh, Elliot Weinberger did it. And I teach it whenever I teach uh, classical Chinese poetry. It is incredibly interesting. Oh, like the, the Goldberg variations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he goes over so many different translations of the poem from Witter Binner in 1836 or whatever the heck that was all the way up to, you know, the 2000s, the early, early 2000s. And Chinese poems, they are tonally parallel frequently. So Chinese tones are split into ping, 
tones and zi tones. And when starting in, oh gosh, I'm, I'm treading on shaky ground here because if the academics hear this, they're going to skewer me. <laughs> in the Tang dynasty, with the advent of new regulated poetry, those the rules about how poetry should be written got more and more complex. If you want to, like, for instance, a four-character poem, we used to do this in performance when I performed crosstalk all the time. The, the, the ping tones and the zi tones could be arranged this way. Ping zi, ping zi, ping ping zi, zi ping zi, ping zi, zi ping, ping ping zi, zi zi ping, ping ping zi, zi, zi zi ping ping. Okay? And okay. even if you don't know what that means, you know that it's symmetrical. Mm. Yeah. You can hear line one and line two are couplets. Line three and line four are couplets. Sure. You know, um, if, if, for instance, in line one, if I'm talking about the blue sky, in the next line, I talk about the green earth. Okay. Contrast, mm. parallelism, balance. These are all incredibly important. And so Magpie is like getting into this. And mm -hmm. she's, you know, she doesn't do it well because she's not, she hasn't grown up in this privileged institution. Yeah. But because she is a poet, she brings in a poet's primary experience mm -hmm. so you have to make sure there's a feeling of trying and failing but of having what it takes but of also like working within this tradition that you kind of know and kind of don't and kind of love and kind of hate mm -hmm. so that's that was the sort of spirit that i tried to bring to those translations gotcha that's awesome our uh, final point kind of has to do more with the ending than anything but we we found mm -hmm. a really interesting mm -hmm. point Besides the peach trees of myth, uh, there are real tangible flowers and the joys and sorrows of gardening <laughs> that becomes the, the refuge for Jumi towards the end of the book. Did you find any significance in this Florida Cortulist sort of idea <laughs> that comes up at the end? So there are a couple of contrasts that... So for me, quite literally the most surprising and powerful moment in the entire book is the night that Xiaomi goes out to look at her plants and she op she peels up one of the one of the leaves and there's like yeah. bugs everywhere. That that passage is unlike every every other passage in that novel. Yeah. I have no idea where it came from. If he wanted if he was like writing himself to get to that point or if it just sort of came <laughs> up. No idea. No idea. It's it's brilliant and it is it's effusive in a way that the rest of the book is very much not. You know, mm -hmm. it's most of it is like, it's kind of cold, dark, suspenseful, harsh, adumbrative. And then he gets to this thing and it's like, bugs are cool. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many pretty bugs here. You know, <laughs> just like, what the hell? And, and then you think about, you think about the, the flourishing world of insects that she has enabled just by growing plants after all of these failures attempting to grow humans mm -hmm. like and yeah. make humans be better at living with each other and just by feeding her plants this mixture of sulfur and poop and whatever like <laughs> she, she gets this beautiful natural thriving natural world and of course then very quickly we get the scene of starvation yeah. Um, in which mass starvation, in which the only 
family that does okay is the family that eats bugs. Mm. Yeah. And I looked this up very recently because they speak about plagues of locusts in, in the class. I was reading the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. They, they, there's a scene that I'm looking at where that it happens. And I was like, you know, in Peach Blossom Paradise, they talk about, you know, Tansu, like he and his family pick up all the dead locusts and they, yeah. they vinegarize, they salt them, and then they eat them. And I was like, did people actually do that? People must have done that. And I looked, and lo and behold, surprise, surprise, humans have been eating locusts since time out of mind. Every culture that could have been decimated and dealt with starvation, they would go out, the whole town would go up, and they would just pile up as many locusts as they could, and they would either preserve them in fat, salt, or acid. Wow. And that because lo- locusts are unbelievably high in protein. Mm-hmm. And you can't do it anymore because we put so much pesticide in the crops that if you eat the locusts, you could die. Oh, God. Okay, so there are layers mm-hmm. of meaning yeah. and stuff here. But anyway, the bugs, the, the that's a very, very long-winded way of saying that the bugs are one of my favorite part of the novel. <laughs> sure. I'm really novel. glad I asked that then. Well, we loved reading this book. And I found the fourth the fourth yeah, section good. to be so moving. And so I love the whole thing. But when you get to that fourth section, you're just like, wow. It's just like you kind of feel it like radiating through your body. Mm-hmm. Are there any final points that you want to mention that we didn't get to? I don't think so. I mean, you know, you finish the book and you send it out into the world. And at this point, it's, it's very much out of your hands. Yeah. And yeah, I, I hope... I hope people keep reading it. It is extremely important. I really, I, I had a great time working on it. And you know, the, the one thing that I would want people to remember about this book and The Invisibility Cloak, which has nothing to do with the books themselves, is again, that like good translations are a family affair mm-hmm. in the fact that it took a team of people at mm-hmm. NYRB. You know, like I said, I thought I was a good writer. And then Jeffrey came in and was like, look, um, and <laughs> everyone from Edwin to Jeffrey to Sarah to Patrick Hederman, who handles uh, rights for them. And just like they've all been so attentive and giving of their time and resources. I mean, you know, they paid me. That's another thing I should say. They paid me. If you're a translator, don't work with anyone who doesn't pay you or doesn't mm. pay you well. Straight up. New York New York Review Books paid me the right amount. They gave me the right amount of time. And it made it eminently worth the best of my time and energy. I think you can tell from a lot of their books just like how important the, the work is and that they're willing to put in the time and, and money to have that product and they will present to the world. And they will stick the translator's name square on the front they cover. They do, yeah. Yes, they do. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and lastly, is there anything you can tell us that you're working on now? I mean, I'm waiting for a contract to come back okay. on something. Okay. I think we're moving forward uh, with something. I'm not gonna tell you because I don't. <laughs> every time I, every time I say stuff like this, like it ruins it. Sure. But everyone, you know, I think people are are excited and. Um, I, I should have some kind of news pretty quick. I'm not on Twitter anymore, but y'all are. And yeah. you know, I still have friends who are. Well, look it up for it. But uh, yeah, please, please do. And um, um, I mean, as much as we enjoyed uh, Gaffey's writing himself, we absolutely loved your work tra- in the translation. It was an excellent Oh, read. great. 
Well, thank you. I'm really glad. It's really nice to have people who care about translations and know how to read them. And uh, yeah, I mean, the world needs you folks. <laughs> well, the, world the world needs, needs you. you. Yeah, you folks. for sure. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so, so much for taking the time and talking to us. It was a blast and we learned a lot. Yeah, thank you folks too. Thank you so much. All right. Well, I think we need to change our question because we, we ask, is it a classic or should it stay buried? But I don't know that we're ever going to want to actually bury. No, it seems it seems yeah, silly. Yeah, we, we got to come up with something else. O- only the old heads of this podcast in the future will know what that mm-hmm. question means. Because at this point, we got we to gotta find something different that the rest of our podcast will, uh, will represent. Yeah, this book is a proper classic. And I, I hope it comes across in the conversation. And if it doesn't, I want to make it clear now that it's... Just a rip-roaring plot. Like, it's a fun, exciting read, you know? It, it's got a lot of weighty themes. Yeah. There's a lot of history and a lot of classical literature and different things going into it. But it is it is a fun, exciting, and moving and satisfying book. Yeah, and like Kaden was saying, like, this isn't the great hero's tale of classical Chinese sort of literature. But it also isn't like this demonstrative, demure tale of like the farmer dying and all this stuff. Like it's just, it's incredibly readable and incredibly relatable. And I, God, I loved it. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again in two weeks when we discuss Short Letter, Long Farewell by Peter Handke. And if you can, give us a review, leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform, and also subscribe. This is a really important way for us to reach new people. Xin chào